Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. Got a lot to recap. Uh, had a week off last week as one of uh, the, the judges here got hitched. So I uh, enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed my week off. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but we'll have our, our recap. We'll have the predictions for the season being the MVP, sixth man of the year, defensive player of the year, coach of the year, and some coach hot seats before we get to everyone's favorite segment, what's the verdict? But first, the recap. So let's talk about some of the biggest games and individual performances over the last couple of weeks, and then just talk about the overview of the standings in the East and the West. Um, Overall, I think that one thing to really note has been what DeMar DeRozan has done over his last couple of games. There's probably um, a couple of players that maybe had a single individual game that was more impressive than the 38-point game that he just put up last night to beat the Lakers 121-103. But if you look at what he's been doing over his last three games, 38, 35, 18 points in the loss, but he's generally been averaging in his last 10 games, 28.7 points per game. And he's also been doing it on really efficient shooting, 51% from the field. He's also getting in 5.4 rebounds, a little bit of playmaking, 4.1 assists. Um, He's been really impressive. And I think that he has been a really big reason for why the Bulls have been as successful as they have been. On top of the other additions like Lonzo, um, Caruso, who quietly was leading the league in steals, he might still be. But um, I think that DeMar DeRozan definitely has had one of the stronger weeks of any of the players in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I just, I agree. And we're going to continue to harp on the Bulls all season because it was my hot take episode one, said last episode that it's not that hot of a take anymore. But it appears that he was the perfect fit there along with the pieces that they added. So it's not surprising to see him doing well. Obviously, defense has always been a question mark for him, but offensively, you've always known that he's had that prowess. But to have gone from the Raptors, where he was, I would say, like an edge case superstar, to going to the Spurs, where it kind of seemed like he was forgotten about, and now going to the Bulls, and it seems like he's reinvigorated and ready to go with this team. Uh, it's good to see, and it's good to have a little bit of parity there with some of the top five scores in the league, especially with a guy who's been here for as long as he has. Um, I would say my most impressive performances uh, or performance over the last couple of weeks have been from Nikola Jokic. He, I think, started the season. We were like, oh, maybe he won't repeat as MVP this year. But his last five games have been exactly what we saw last year. Uh, distributing the ball very well. His last games, uh, six assists, nine assists, 10 assists, 10 assists, two assists for the last five. So two of them being double digit and one of them being one away. His rebounding has been off the charts with 16 last game, then nine, 19, 15, and 14. So with the exception of one game uh, being in double digits and in that one game that he was Almost in double digits, he almost had a triple-double with uh, the rebounds and assist numbers. Um, And he's also been doing it on a pretty efficient uh, scoring basis. He's overall for the season about 60% from the field, almost 40% from three-point range, uh, and is a little bit below the mark on his free throws at 74.2%. But all in all this season, I think he's showing exactly why he was MVP last season. He's got uh, the the highest PER in the league by far at 35.44 for the overall season. So I don't know if he'll be able to maintain that. Kevin Durant sitting second at 29.68. But I think Nikola Jokic over the last five games has shown that he's just an all-around skilled player and why he won MVP last year. Yeah, I have to agree with you. He's really been impressive. I did not think that he was going to have as dominant of a year this year because – you were going to have a couple of other players that were expected to either return from injury like Jamal Murray or either step into bigger roles um, like Michael Porter Jr. 
which would maybe take a little bit of the load off of him, but it doesn't really seem to have slowed him down at all. Um, another thing before moving on uh, to our next, we would be remiss to not mention the fact that two stars that have been struggling a little bit this season uh, due to the lack of foul calls primarily have finally seemed to get some good games going. Um, we have James Harden, who put up 39 points and 12 assists um, in the Brooklyn Nets 120-112 win over the Pelicans. He was saying that that game, that he's finally starting to feel a little bit more in game shape, that he's still not 100% yet, but he's getting there. He had said earlier in the season that he just was not in the physical shape yet to put up 30 points a game night in and night out. But um, it seems like he's starting to get more comfortable, 6 of 10 from 3, and he got to the line 15 times. Um, I don't know if that's a product of him just receiving more legitimate contact or if referees finally starting to feel bad for him. But regardless, um, it's good for the Brooklyn Nets that he finally seems to be coming to life a little bit. And Trey Young, another player who had a similar story, put up a ridiculous um, 42 points on 8 of 13 shooting from three in a 120-100 win over the Bucks, And that's following another pretty big game. So it seems that Trey Young is finally starting to turn it around for a Hawks team that is really struggling and really does need a boost. Um, right now, the Atlanta Hawks at six and nine definitely need to turn it around. And I guess we can't really ignore the West. We have to mention the fact that Paul George without Kawhi Leonard, even though he's had larger performances earlier in the season, he is keeping the Clippers humming at seven and four. He's putting up MVP type numbers. And then, of course, the Warriors, who don't even have Clay Thompson in the lineup. Um, they also don't have James Wong has been in the lineup and they've been missing Kuminga, who figures to be um, a pretty useful piece, are 11 and two, a league best, largely because Stephen Curry, who is now the all-time leader in made threes, um, has been playing MVP ball, just extremely efficient, um, integrating veteran talent with new young pieces. And it seems like the Warriors kind of have that original formula that they had when they won the championship before Durant came and maybe a little bit extra. Yeah, it's going to be scary hours when uh, Clay Thompson comes back, for sure. I feel like him and Kevin Durant are going to give players promise after having Achilles injuries. Uh, we talked about this last season that I think the only player that came back and had better seasons after their Achilles injury was Rudy Gay. And aside from that, everyone else, like Anderson Varejao, Chauncey Billups, pretty much left for dead after Achilles uh, tendon tears. And obviously Kevin Durant is playing at the same level, if not higher than what he was before the Achilles injury. Uh, we'll see because Clay Thompson's been out one additional year with that ACL tear. If it takes him a little bit longer to get back into to basketball shape. But I think that both of those players will likely show people that, Hey, Achilles injuries aren't so bad after all, similar to what we saw with Tommy John in baseball or what we saw with ACL tears generally in sports over the years. So I hope the best for Clay Thompson coming back, but I think that with the Warriors team, the way that it is right now, and like you said, the infusion of young uh, with veteran talent, I think that they have as good a chance as ever to go all the way this year. But talking about some of these teams, the Warriors are sitting at top of the West, but let's just take a look at the, the West standings overall, and then we can go to the East. What surprises you in terms of the overall Western Conference standings? Does anything stick out or does this seem relatively uh, up to par with what you thought going into the season? Um, I mean, for the most part, the teams are around what you would expect. Um, there really aren't too many surprises outside of the Warriors being 11-2. and two. Um, I mean, I, th I thought they were going to be better this year, but I didn't think they'd be 11 and two, especially without Clay Thompson, um, probably inarguably their second best player. Everyone else with the Phoenix Suns at number two, 10 and three, is pretty in line. The one big surprise that sticks out to me is the Dallas Mavericks, who at nine and four, sitting at number three, is really surprising to me, given that they got off to a bit of a slow start. Their roster is also pretty much unchanged from last season. And outside of Luka Doncic, if you look at their roster, they don't really have all that much. Kristaps Porzingis, a player who was once regarded as a potential perennial all-star talent, 
is really just a guy who stands in the corner at this point and shoots threes or takes advantage off of offensive rebound putbacks at this point. So at 19.3 points per game, um, he's not really, you know, doing anything so crazy that you would expect him to put this team over the top. And Luka Doncic, by his standards, is having a bit of a down year. He's averaging 24.9 points per game, um, and his PER is only 21.82. So he's definitely down across the board and everything. But somehow um, the Dallas Mavericks are still seemingly outpacing their performance last season. So that's the one big surprise. Yeah, I, I, I'm not really surprised by anything in the West. I think that this, it, if you asked me, you know, who are your top eight, I probably would have said everyone that's there currently maybe flipped Portland with Memphis, but John Morant is just electric and is having a stellar season. So it doesn't surprise me. I think the bottom five is exactly who I would have imagined. Uh, Oklahoma City is doing, again, better than I think most would expect given their treasure trove of assets that they have. Minnesota Timberwolves can't seemingly get out of the hole no matter who they add. Spurs are they're they're just going to be in full rebuild mode um, for the next couple of seasons. And then the Pelicans and Rockets, you expected to be towards the bottom there. Probably Pelicans, you expect to be uh, doing a little better, but they don't have their star second-year player in Zion. So, um, But I want to go over to the East where uh, I am a bit surprised at who is sitting on top. And we had last season Sad Brad, who then turned into Mad Brad, and now I think is glad Brad because I have not seen Bradley Beal smile as much as he has this season. Uh, and for good reason, I don't think he's going anywhere. I feel like he will definitely sign with them if things continue the way that they are, but it really does seem like you had Russell Westbrook on this team. It clearly, even though it, it seemed on the surface that everything was okay, it probably wasn't. And you trade him to get a couple of role players. You get Spencer Dinwiddie to come over. And now the Wizards are number one in the East. I don't expect them to finish number one in the East. But clearly there is a, uh, an issue on that team with Russell Westbrook, who now in the Lakers has the Lakers sitting at uh, the seventh spot. Um, but I, I, the Wizards surprised me the most. I think that Bradley Beal is... If, if this team finishes in the top three, it will be a huge success in keeping him for next year, even if they have a first-round exit. But uh, the, the Wizards definitely have been impressive. Um, and then looking down, I think the other surprise, Cleveland Cavaliers sitting at nine and six. I thought they had a front-court logjam in terms of the players that they added this offseason. They got Denzel Valentine. They got... Um, Lori Markinen, uh, they got Evan Mobley during the draft. So it just felt like they continued to add more and more in front court pieces after getting Jarrett Allen last year. Um, and it seems like whatever they did is working, um, which has been surprising. I still expect them to finish in the bottom tier of teams in the, that nine or 10 spot and the Celtics uh, to climb a little bit as well as the 76ers. But on the outside, the Bucks and the Hawks are completely surprising that they are sitting at under 500. The Bucks aren't even in a play-in spot right now. And we'll talk about some predictions in a second, but you know, the, the Bucks and the Hawks thinking about last year should be having relatively good success. I think that they, given where they got into the conference finals last year and the exciting young talent they have in those teams and pretty much, returned most of their players from last year as well so you didn't really expect this to happen obviously the Hawks we talked about a little bit with Trey Young uh the the like foul shooting troubles uh but him getting into rhythm now but the Bucks didn't really have that Giannis still bruising people in the paint still getting in there uh at will but I expect both of them to at least get into the play-in spot but at the moment it is surprising that 14-15 games in these teams are sitting outside of the play-in and are under 500. Yeah, no, the East has definitely been um, extremely surprising. Even the Indiana Pacers, um, not really a great team by my estimation, was still a team that I expected to be in the top eight. 
Um, the Toronto Raptors sitting at number 10 are actually doing a little better than I thought because they are seven and eight. I expected this team actually to be doing worse than they are. They're technically right there with all the other teams um, that are going to be around that eight, seventh seed towards the bottom of the bracket. I actually think that the Raptors have a chance to fight for that eighth seed spot or seventh seed spot pretty much all year long, um, seeing as they just got better with Pascal Siakam returning to the lineup. So I do expect them to eventually crack into that top eight, as well as the Bucks and the Hawks, which means some teams are going to have to fall out, of course. The Cleveland Cavaliers, to me, are not sustainable. They're nine and six right now, and they've been impressive looking throughout the year, but I definitely expect them to regress. They have a, a differential of 1.6 points per game, so they're barely winning their games. They could easily have a losing record right now. They haven't really played the hardest competition, but um, I definitely expect them to drop out. The Washington Wizards, as you've said, extremely impressive. I don't expect them to finish number one either, but I think what's really impressive about the Wizards is the fact that they're playing this well with Bradley Beal essentially taking a step back a little bit. Bradley Beal is way down this year in scoring compared to last year. Um, and he's honestly not, not been as good in terms of his efficiency either. He's only averaging 23.3 points per game. Um, and he's also, his PER is 16.26, which is way down from last season. I think the biggest difference for them actually has been the new additions. If you look at their roster, Montrez Harrell off the bench has turned one of the worst benches in the league into one of the best benches in the league. He's averaging 18 points and 8.5 rebounds off the bench and has far and away the highest efficiency on this roster at 28.35. And then you have Spencer Dinwiddie, who no one really talks about too much, but always makes an impact on the game. 17 points per game, six assists, 5.5 rebounds with good defense, turning a team that was one of the uh, worst teams on the defense, on the defensive end on the perimeter last season into a team that at least isn't a liability. So I think that the new additions definitely are will play the biggest role in the Wizards' resurgence, more so than Bradley Beal's performance. So um, you got to give what I think is probably one of the worst front offices in basketball their credit. They made additions that over the offseason, on paper, you wouldn't expect to really make that big of a difference for this squad, but it really has paid off dividends for them. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk instead about the teams right now let's talk about some of the predictions for the season so let's maybe give like one to two front runners at the moment and then maybe one to two dark horse candidates for each of these so starting with mvp who you got well if it's if i'm being completely honest at this point i think that stephen curry is going to win the mvp he we've talked about it before the criteria for what it takes to win mvp team success narrative individual performance he's hitting on all cylinders no one expected the warriors to be doing this good um, and he's got them humming without their second best player draymond green really isn't quite what he used to be but it doesn't matter the warriors are dominating teams they have had young players really develop and it's really i think thanks to stephen curry being there to make life easier for these young guys and get everybody organized when you have a player like him on the court he attracts so much attention that it just makes life easier for everyone else. He's averaging 28 points per game, which is second in the league in scoring. And he's also averaging 6.2 assists and, or uh, 6.2 rebounds and 6.7 assists with a PER of 27, which is good for six. So um, I think when you look at front runners, he probably has all the metrics. And um, I'd say that my second most likely player would probably have to be Paul George at this point, if we're just going based on a statistical um, basis, his Clippers are doing really well. He's averaging 26.5 points per game, 8.2 rebounds and 5.2 assists. Um, he's looked really great this year. He's been clutch. He's got this team without Kawhi Leonard in really firm position in the West. The biggest question with him is, is Kawhi Leonard returning eventually going to impact um, his usage and the numbers that he's putting up. I have no doubt that he can consistently put up these kinds of numbers all year long. The question is, when Kawhi returns, will that affect um, the numbers that he produces? And then I think for my dark candidate or my dark horse candidate, I probably have to go and give it to Jimmy Butler. Um, 
He was before this recent game that he uh, had to leave early, dropped his average down to 23.6, but he was averaging pretty much 25 points, 5.5 rebounds and five assists per game. And he's doing it on very efficient shooting and providing elite defense. His PER of 29.03 is fourth in the league. And he's got the heat looking very dominant this season when he's in. So I expect that the team is probably going to be um, a very competitive team all year long. So he'll definitely have the team success part down. Um, as long as he can continue this volume, which is something that we're not used to seeing from Jimmy, um, that's something that I think would potentially put him in position for a dark horse MVP candidate. I'm going to go a completely different direction aside from Steph Curry. I agree with you on Steph, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit different on some of the others. So I would say in addition to Steph, my top candidate would be Nikola Jokic repeating. I think that if he were to keep up what he's doing right now at the pace that he is and potentially get the three-point percentage up, Nikola Jokic would be in the 60-40 club in terms of field goal percentage and three-point percentage and be doing so with nearly 14 rebounds a game and six assists, which you probably expect those assist numbers to get up as well. So we'll see what type of impact Jamal Murray has when he comes back on Jokic and whether that ups his assist numbers and lowers his uh, points per game or if it just makes him and the Denver Nuggets that much uh, more efficient overall. Um, I would say my other top candidate would likely be uh, Kevin Durant, aside from Steph Curry and Jokic, just because Durant, if he keeps the nets within the one to two seed, and it seems like James Harden is kind of taking a step back this year. Um, but if Kevin Durant keeps his team in the top one to two seed with Kyrie out, all of the narrative that's been around Kyrie all year, and he is as dominant as ever and is the, the slim reaper, then I see him uh, potentially getting another MVP to his trophy trove. And then my dark horse candidates, uh, I've got two. One of them we've already talked about, and I, I'm going to sound like a Bulls fan here, but I think if DeMar DeRozan gets the Bulls into uh, the top two seeds, probably not top three, but top two seeds, and it continues to play at a high level, but more efficiently, um, then I, I could see DeMar getting some votes at least to be in, in the top, let's say, five or maybe top three. Um, but if there's an injury or if a guy sits out for a while or if the Nets or Nuggets or Warriors take a tumble down the, the standings and the Bulls stay afloat, then I could see DeMar um, hopping in there. And I think a similar story goes for John Morant. Um, I, I see both of those two guys – need to have like a similar narrative or piece happen where they get their team into the top two standings. And then on top of that, just continue to play out of their mind more efficiently. And um, it's, I think it's unlikely, but it is possible for those two. Yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely for Kevin Durant um, just slipped my mind because you almost take it for granted. The fact that he's just going to be leading the league in scoring um, pretty much every other year that he's healthy, he seems like he's right there, one, two, or three in scoring. So he's leading the league in scoring right now at 29.6 points per game. He's also second in efficiency um, with 29.68 PER, shooting 46% from three in his last 10 games and 42% from three overall. With 58% field goal shooting, he actually has the possibility himself to be in that 60-40 field goal three-point club in addition to Jokic on higher volume. So, um, yeah, you have to give him his credit. The guy definitely is having an MVP-type season as well. well. What's wild is I saw a graphic earlier uh, this week that was showing all of the players that are currently in the NBA and their offensive points added and defensive points prevented. And Kevin Durant was, like, in the upper quadrant and a complete outlier from everybody else. Like, he was <laughs> far and beyond on the offensive points added and then, like, still in the upper echelon of defensive points prevented. And the only other player that I saw that like was distinctly away from people was Jimmy Butler, who was higher than Durant on the defensive points uh, prevented, but definitely lower on the offensive points added. So just uh, a testament to what he's able to do on both ends of the floor. And like you said, I think people take for granted his defensive prowess because he's really gotten much better with 
on the defensive end of the ball over the last like five or six years um, than when he started in the league. But yeah, he's he's electric. So let's talk about six man of the year. We got. There's actually um, a lot of good candidates for that this season, but you know, at risk of having people tell me, I told you so I have to give it to Tyler hero. Um, the guy has been, in my opinion, if we ever most, meet Tyler hero, I'm going to have to give I'm him sure. an apology note. I'm yep. going to have to give him a signed <laughs> apology to, letter. Yeah. I'm going to have to tell him, Hey, I'm sorry, dude. Yeah. I thought you were really messing up in your, in your second year. I didn't like what you were doing off the court. I thought you were being a little bit too much of a diva, but he definitely heard all the criticism because you know, he's on social media. He definitely saw it all and he took it to and heart. He got, he got in the lab so, this off season. He definitely did. I mean, no one really knew it because he wasn't really, um, he wasn't doing that thing really that players do where they post all their workouts and all that. He didn't really like show that too much, but he clearly was in the gym. If you look at him play, I have to say he's the most explosive scorer off the bench this season. I mean, you, I don't really think you can even argue it. He definitely has the most 30-point uh, games off the bench in the NBA this season. And he's also averaging 21.9 points, 5.7 rebounds, 3.9 assists, all off the bench. He also regularly closes in crunch time. So you can't say that he's doing it all against bench competition because he regularly scores on starters and he's doing it on really good efficiency um 39 from three on 7.1 attempts per game so a big big increase um from where he was last season and he's also shooting 46 percent from the field so i think that probably the most impressive thing has been also um the fact that he has shown the ability to consistently hit bad shots and unfortunately as much as when you're a coach and you try to teach the fundamentals of the game you try to um, steer players away from taking the sorts of shots that he's taking the reality of the matter is that there are going to be some possessions where your offense didn't accomplish what it initially was trying to do and now you're faced with a late shot clock situation where you're not going to get a good quality look and you're going to have to put up a tough shot and you're just going to have to hope that you have a guy who's a tough shot maker that gives you a chance to actually get those points and a lot of times in the playoffs and in tight games it can be a really tough bucket that makes the difference between a win and a loss. And he's consistently shown the ability to hit pressure shots, shots where defenders are draped all over him, shots that really only a handful of players in the NBA um, have been able to hit as consistently as he has. And he's been doing it um, on a variety of different shots. He's not only hitting threes, he's really improved his mid-range game, his floater game. Um, he's finishing better at the rim, his decision-making on pick and roll and when it pass. Um, he's honestly overall just incredibly more polished this season than he was last. So I think that um, at this point, he's far and away the front runner. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I think that Tyler Hero is definitely one of the front runners. I would say my other front runner, we mentioned him earlier, but Montrez Harrell clearly was a bad fit on the Lakers last year. But I think with what he's doing, having the highest PER on that team for the Wizards coming off the bench and just giving them, giving that second unit uh, just an effective scoring uh, machine as well as a rebounding machine, I think that Montrez Harrell uh, has a chance to repeat as sixth man of the year. He won when he was with the Clippers and is showing why he won over on the Wizards. So he would be my other top candidate. Yeah, no arguments. Um, no arguments there. He's definitely a very deserved player, and I'm sure that Jordan Clarkson um, is also going to be a player to watch throughout the season. But I think that overall, I mean, for bench scoring, this is going to be a nice year. But if Hero can sustain it, that's, that's the main question. The rate that he's been doing this is honestly almost unbelievable. I just feel like to consistently hit such difficult shots, I still find it a little unlikely that he's going to keep up at this rate and this pace, given the quality of shots that he's used to taking. But if he can actually keep this up all year long, I don't think there's a question he'll win. Well, we've got our six man of the year candidates in the books. So who, who do you have for a uh, defensive player of the year? I think that you uh, mentioned it a little bit, but Jimmy Butler, as you mentioned, 
the highest defensive win shares of any player in the league. Um, right now, Jimmy Butler is also averaging one point or no, 2.5 steals per game on the road, which is higher than what he averages at home, which is something that you definitely need a guy who's a road warrior that can steady your team 2.1 steals overall. Um, and he's holding his opponents to one of the lowest field goal percentages of any perimeter player. Um, I think that the versatility that he offers on that end, being able to switch onto bigger players in the paint and then also be able to jump passing lanes, which is a really hard skill because when you jump a passing lane, if you guess wrong or you miss, that means you left your guy wide open for either a three, a wide open shot, a dunk potentially, but he has a knack of knowing when to go for it. Um, and it just deflates the other team and takes the momentum away from you when you get a deflection or a steal on the other end that leads to a quick bucket and stops a run. So I think that he's been consistently the most impactful defensive player of the season so far. And I think that given the intensity that he plays with and also the fact that he has a good defensive team overall, it's going to help him look good and help him be effective all season long on defense. Yeah, the Heat have definitely looked great on defense and is exactly what people thought when they went and got P.J. Tucker, when they got uh, Markeef, when they added uh, Kyle Lowry, was that this team is going to be great on defense and it really has accentuated both Jimmy and Bam's performance. I think that uh, Bam has also had a great defensive year. Uh, he was playing ridiculously and has kind of cooled off from where he started at the beginning of the year, but still his defensive rating per 100 possessions is uh, at 100, which is the by far the lowest in his career. So if he continues that pace, I think that um, he has a good chance of being in the discussion for that. Uh, I think you can't ignore what Chris Paul is doing now and seems like he's just aging backwards, Benjamin Button, uh, in terms of what he's been able to do. But leading the league in assists right now, but also leading the league in steals right now at 26 per game, which for his career, there's only been two seasons where he's uh, done or performed better from an assist or steal standpoint. So I think that Chris Paul um, also has the potential given uh, that the, the Suns are sitting second in the West um, and just being in his now like almost 20th season um, to, to be putting up those numbers, I think uh, is a testament to what he's been able to do on the defensive end. Um, and I think every year he, he's always in the conversation. And of course this year, best defensive rating he's ever had thus far for 13 games, but Rudy Gobert, um, he's got a 97 right now for defensive rating. He, in his defensive player of the year uh, seasons, had, hadn't put up the, those kind of numbers for the defensive rating and also is doing so while just getting better on the offensive end. So I think Rudy Gobert also, of course, has a chance to repeat as Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, I can't disagree with you on those. Um, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. There's a lot of perimeter players that are going to be considered this year where usually the award is usually a big man's award to lose. So it'll be interesting to see um, the criteria. You, you, As a big man, you usually have better numbers to work with it's usually easier to have defensive rebounds factor as well as well as blocks and defensive field goal percentage when you're always um, expected to be the rim protector. But as you mentioned, um, perimeter defensive players this year making a really big impact. So there's a chance that this year we'll see a perimeter player take that defensive player of the year award. All right. So there have obviously been some teams that are off to a hot start based off of these teams or what some coaches have been able to do. Who do you got for coach of the year this year? I mean, I really like uh, Steve Kerr for coach of the year this year. I mean, obviously that's not exactly a super exciting pick. A lot of people will probably say that he's a front runner, but the thing is, if I'm just being completely honest, I mean, I got to give it to him. His team has the greatest differential in the entire league and it's not even close um, winning at 13.6%. He has, honestly, probably far and away the best record at 0.857. The next closest team is the Phoenix Suns at 10 and three. And he's doing this without his second best player in the lineup, having to integrate a ton of new pieces. It's not like before this year, um, Jordan Poole was really a commodity anyone knew about. 
Gary Payton II, who's been a big contributor this season, not really someone that anyone knew about. Um, the ability to develop players and integrate them with their veteran talent. And also it's extremely impressive that they're able to essentially keep the concepts that make them successful. But on a year-to-year -year basis, he's able to modify based on the roster that he has. He makes a little bit of tweaks. Like, for example, this year we're seeing that they're playing a lot of triangle and box and one defense. And it's really messing with teams on the perimeter because this year they realize they have a lot of length and a lot of young players that can guard on the perimeter. So the fact that um, he's able to recover from some pretty awful years where he missed the playoffs, he was missing his best guys, and then he's back after the Warriors dynasty was essentially considered ended. And here he is putting his team in a position to win another championship, and they don't even have their second best player back. I think that uh, it's basically his to lose. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think that Steve Kerr is doing an incredible job, but I think that the coach of the year piece is usually given to uh, candidates that are doing a lot with a little. Last year, Tom Thibodeau got coach of the year and he was had an overperforming Knicks team in everybody's estimation. And he really got the most out of that young group. And so as I look to someone or people that fit that narrative, I think you have to look at the two teams at top of the East. Washington Wizards hired Wes Unsell Jr. It was a hire that had some ties to the organization, but people didn't really see it as a sexy hire, didn't see it as uh, somebody who maybe would do a lot with that team. And you've had the sad Brad, mad Brad for the last three or four years. And now he comes in there. They have a roster with really one bona fide star on it with Bradley Beal. And they're sitting at the top of the East. So if they're able to maintain that and stay within the top three, I think he will definitely be in the top two contention. And then the other person sitting at the top there, we've talked about this team a lot. We've talked about them at the start of the episode with their reinvigoration of DeMar DeRozan, but Chicago Bulls and Billy Donovan, I think that team having a bunch of new pieces on it, a lot of pieces that are younger players or unproven players or players who others thought lost a step now have all come together and rallied around that team and him as a coach. So I think that those two, given the narrative of, hey, these guys haven't been there before, they have newer teams or they're new to this organization, if it's one or two years at the organization, um, and look at what they're doing here, I think that they're going to get a, a lot of attention and garner a lot of support for that award if they maintain any of the top three spots. Yeah, I guess it's going to come down to what do you value more, um, a coach that is doing a lot with less, the way you described it, or a coach that seemingly is developing talent year after year and integrating it with established pieces and making it work and fire on all cylinders. Um, I understand your arguments. If the Wizards can maintain the number one seed, then I'd have to agree with you. He's a strong candidate. I just don't think that they are going to sustain that. I think they're definitely going to regress. And so I think that that's going to take them out of the conversation. And the Bulls, I think that you are pretty spot on with your prediction on that one. He's definitely going to be um, someone that's going to be in the conversation all year long, most likely. All right. Well, let's look at this on the flip side. Who do you think has the best chance of getting fired as of right now? <laughs> well, I'm just going to go ahead. This might be a little bit of a cop-out, but you got to feel like Frank Vogel's seat is really, really hot. And it's not, it's not just because the Lakers are underperforming. I'm also saying it because it seems like his players openly question his decision-making. He doesn't necessarily put out the best rotations. And I think that even announcers, I've seen a couple of Lakers games, will question the rotations that he chooses to put out there. Um, and it just hasn't been working. And when you have a team where LeBron James is a player on your roster and you're, you're underperforming, someone has to be the scapegoat. There has to be someone to take the blame and fall on the sword for why a LeBron team isn't succeeding. And we've seen in the past that a lot of times that ends up being the coach. It's going to be either the coach or it's going to be Russell Westbrook. One of these two is going to take the blame. And it's a lot easier to part ways with Frank Vogel, a guy who – when they first chose him, they didn't seem 100% on him anyway. They had Jason Kidd there essentially um, looming in the shadows, ready to take over at any moment if he had a misstep. So it, it doesn't seem to me like they were really that secure in his hire in the first place. 
and having the type of season that he's had now. And let's not forget, I mean, just because he won a championship, no one ever gives um, coaches that win championships with LeBron any credit. So that's not going to earn him any stock. So I'd say that his is probably the hottest seat in the league. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I think, though, for the Lakers, the reason why there was so much uncertainty or, ooh, this might be like a hot seat that they are thinking about the same way that David Blatt was with the Cavs is they had somebody behind Frank Vogel that you knew LeBron endorsed as coach, which was Jason Kidd, who has since left to the Dallas Mavericks. So unless LeBron goes to Rob Palenka and it's not a Russ problem, it's a coach problem and says, hey, my guy Fizz from Miami, who's the lead coach on the bench, I want him to be coach. I don't know if they have that same uh, like coach in waiting that they had with Jason Kidd. So that's the only hesitancy I would have to say, hey, let's fire Frank Vogel. Obviously, if the team is completely underwater and not doing well and hits on all the points that you did, it won't really matter who's sitting at the end of the bench um, that is next. They're just going to want to get rid of him. But I I think he'll be at least secure to the end of the season, and then they'll start to see what dominoes fall in terms of other coaches that are available. Because I don't think that they'd want to have – Fizdale or John Lucas be their permanent coach going forward. I will say this. I think that if Frank Vogel has the Lakers at the eighth seed or lower, when it's the all-star break, you can count on being gone. So we'll see what happens. If his team can get pulled out of the basement of the West, they're sitting at seventh right now with an eight and seven record. LeBron um, seemingly is hinting at returning soon. His addition, I'm sure, will help them to some extent. So we'll see if that's enough to get this team to start going. But again, if they are sitting where they are right now, come all-star break or lower, I definitely feel like he's going to be gone. So we'll see. See, Well, I have a couple other ones. Uh, My first one is a repeat from last year, and it's because they're not going to repeat from last year, and that's Mike Budenholzer. I think the Milwaukee Bucks right now are sitting at six and eight. They're in the 11th spot. I know they just gave him an extension coming off of that championship run, and honestly, it felt like it was championship or bust for him. So for him to have won the championship now means that he got an extension, but I just I haven't felt like he's the right fit of a coach there in Milwaukee. You have Giannis recently in GQ saying that, you know, he finished his challenge in Milwaukee and he's looking forward to the next one. However, that might not be in Milwaukee necessarily. So reading the tea leaves there, uh, I, I don't think he is exactly uh, happy with what's going on and probably felt like he took on the brunt of the championship run last year along with Chris Middleton. So I think that the Bucks, if they end up not even making a play in game, will part ways with Mike Budenholzer. And then from the Western Conference, uh, have a couple there as well. I think that the Sacramento Kings, uh, Luke Walton experience, if they don't get into the play in, uh, that that will be over as well. I think that he's also kind of done a poor job of having the right players in the rotation. You've had a lot of questions with Badgley and why he hasn't been used pretty much at all. Um, And clearly there's been a rift between him and Marvin there. So I think the Kings will probably recycle their coach once again for probably the 20th time in 10 years. Uh, I don't think it's a hot seat necessarily, but I think it's the inevitable has been closing in on Popovich stepping down. So definitely not going to be fired, but I think that, if the Spurs are going to embrace the full rebuild, I don't think that Popovich, who is one of the most decorated coaches in the NBA, is going to stick around with that franchise from a coaching capacity. Maybe he stays on as like a special advisor or something. But I think that if they're going to go embrace the full rebuild, they'll you know have him leave, likely hire Becky Hammond because she's been there uh, for the longest and definitely deserves a coaching opportunity. So I think they would pass the reins on to her and and have her rebuild. And the final one for me that I think will likely be a hot seat because of the new ownership that came in uh, is Chris Finch with the Minnesota Timberwolves. That was a weird hire last year that he was brought in like mid season after they let go of Ryan Saunders. And I don't think that 
I think he's a good coach, but if they're a team that has talent and clearly can't get over the hump, and now they have Alex Rodriguez and Mark Lore coming in to replace Glenn Taylor, those guys are going to want to set up their own organization, both with the Timberwolves and the Lynx. And if they're not experiencing success, then they're probably going to clean house and put their guys that they want in there. So you already saw that with the general manager. And I think that with the head coach as well, uh, if they're not successful, then I see Chris, Chris Finch having a very short time as a head coach in the NBA. Yeah, I probably would agree with you on most of those points. Um, Popovich's seat, not really a hot one because he'd probably by his own accord, but I think there's no way that uh, Mike Budenholzer gets fired. I think, I mean, I just don't know why he gets such an unfair shake. Um, the guy just won a championship, and it's not like the LeBron teams where you can say, oh, he, there was a bunch of stars on that team. That team was loaded. They were supposed to win. No, they were not expected to win the championship last year. And he did probably, I'm not going to say he did a lot with a little because they had a good roster, but he probably did more with that roster than most people thought was possible. And if Giannis didn't like him as the coach, he would have been gone a long time ago. Giannis could have, when he was signing his free agency um, contract, could have said, hey, look, I want to stay here in Milwaukee, but I'm just not sure about this Mike Budenholzer guy. He never indicated that. He had the leverage to do that. He never chose that because probably he's comfortable with this guy. He did win a championship with him. It's not like, you know, he's never accomplished anything with, with the Bucks. I mean, the guy is honestly doing about as much as you can with that roster. And the other thing to consider, too, is that this year they've been missing Chris Middleton most of the season. He's barely played. And if you remove Chris Middleton from that team, you have Giannis and a bunch of role players. It's not really going to work out, especially with, a, with an Eastern Conference. It's a lot stronger this year. But I expect fully that when Middleton returns, rounds back into form, um, and once they get healthy, because they've had a ton of injuries, this team eventually will be back um, in the top eight and obviously probably the top six at the very least when it's all set and done. Well, we'll see. And if not, maybe Budenholder's gone. But on to the next segment. What's the verdict? You'll ask me a series of questions, and I will let you know based off of that if the person or situation is guilty or innocent. Let's do it. All right. So the league's been getting a little bit crazy lately. Markeith Morris recently hits Nikola Jokic with a hard foul during the Heat-Nuggets game. Nikola Jokic takes offense to that and responds by shoving Markeith Morris after he had turned around. And the hit apparently gave Markeith Morris whiplash, and he hasn't played a game since. Is Nikola Jokic guilty of being a dirty player or was he in his right to retaliate? Do I think he's a inherently a dirty player? No. So I'll say he's innocent on that. But what I will say he's guilty of is being a sore loser. You saw this last year in several games. You've seen this in the past with him. It just seems that like when they're not doing well or the team's not doing well and something just that would, you know, irk anybody but given the fact that the situation is hey things aren't going right and that's like the straw that broke the camel's back then he just does something that is unsportsmanlike and so i should he have retaliated maybe but maybe he gives him an actual hard foul on the other end not shoving him in the back especially like the morris brothers have a pretty tough reputation around the league so I don't know. I I don't think it was the right play on his part. I think that there are better ways to retaliate in the NBA, and that wasn't one of them. Yeah, for me, um, I obviously don't think that Nikola Jokic was trying to give Markeith Morris whiplash. I think that he was actually in his right to retaliate. I'm going to be on his side here because Markeith Morris and Marcus Morris are both players that are known to really – be physical and get under their players' skins. And sometimes it's a little bit excessive. If you saw that play, this was not like a play where Nikola Jokic was going for a layup and he made a play on the ball and it was just a hard foul. No, this was like a play near the top of the three-point line, behind the three. Jokic was just walking, about to receive the ball, and Marky Morris just throws a shoulder into him, unprompted. 
And then he proceeds to turn around. I mean, he threw a really hard foul at him. If you do that to a player, you can't just turn around and walk away. Like you got to know this player is going to come back at you because you can't just go around trying to shoulder people on non-basketball plays and expect that no one's going to call you out or try to retaliate for it. So it was unfortunate that he ended up getting hurt, but hopefully it serves as a lesson to players. Don't start with the chippy fouls if you're not going to stand your ground and then expect retaliation from the other player. Because if it was me, I probably would have done the same thing. I probably wouldn't have appreciated a shove like that. Yeah. Well, I think Moving we'll see what the happens when they, when they meet up again later on the season. But like you're saying. We'll see. I'm sure um, the, the Jokic brothers were trying to get involved. And so was Marcus Morris's brother. But I don't think anything will come of it. I think it was just a, a one-play incident. But on that note, it seems that the league in general has been getting a lot more physical. Recently, we have Rudy Gobert and Miles Turner getting into a scuffle on the court. We got players getting ejected. And then we get Rudy Gobert coming out saying um, he doesn't know why guys are acting tough. Um, don't act like you want to fight. If you know that there's going to be a bunch of referees to separate us in 10 seconds, um, I'm not hard to find. If you want to fight, you can find me off the court, all this tough guy stuff. But um, in general, there has just been a lot more fighting this season. Do you think that the lack of calls by referees is leading to this increased aggression? Is the league guilty of its officiating directly resulting in increased aggression from the players? I actually don't think the league is guilty here. I think it's the fact of what Rudy actually said in his post-game interview where he was saying, I know we're not going to fight. You know we're not going to fight. And he was like, I'm an easy guy to reach. You can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever. Happy to meet you up and fight wherever because apparently Rudy Gobert also boxes in the offseason like some players do. So I – I wouldn't want to get into a fight with Rudy Gobert if I was Miles Turner or anybody else because he's a very large man and also uh, does combat sports as a hobby. So I, but I agree with what he's saying. Like we all know that nobody is going to fight on the court and all of this is just talk. And so why are we wasting time in the game or trying to get into these fake scuffles that are going to be broken up immediately? This isn't hockey. So I think that the, aggression or the increased level of fighting is from the fact that they know that there's not going to be repercussions down the line. Sure. They get a little fine or maybe they get suspended for a game, but like they're not going to get decked in the face by a guy that's bigger than them. And they're not going to actually get into a fight and then get suspended for six to 10 games. So I just don't think that there is any uh, like consequence that anyone recently has received for fighting that threatens somebody enough to not just be chippy with the other players. Yeah, I probably would have to agree with that. It's probably more so the players than the league's fault. But um, moving on to our next subject, Anthony Davis says, after a recent loss, we need shooters, not triple-double machines. Is he guilty of unfairly blaming Russell Westbrook for the Lakers struggles, because let's be real, he's indirectly calling out Russell Westbrook with this. So is he guilty of unfairly putting the blame on this man? He definitely is guilty. I think that it takes the whole team to step up and you need somebody who is passing the ball to open shooters in order to actually make shots. So I, I think that it's a thing that the entire team needs to grapple with and they are going to be getting uh, uh, Palin Horton Tucker back. LeBron seems to be coming back as well. I, and so I think it's more of a, we talked about him earlier, Frank Vogel choosing the right lineups issue, putting shooters that are on the floor, and then those guys knocking the shots down. Because even though Russell is going to get turnovers every game, he is going to find the open man, and he is going to ensure that his team are, are getting good looks. So I, I think Anthony Davis is definitely unfairly calling out Russell Westbrook because I think the whole team can do a hell of a lot better in terms of their shooting um, and making up for the overall Lakers struggles. Yeah, Anthony Davis in general has a tendency to want to air out his laundry a lot in interviews. I personally don't appreciate um, players always airing out things that should probably be addressed. 
amongst individuals in the locker room because of what it does for your team. It obviously attracts a lot of negative attention, and I don't think that it's going to help improve anyone's play by attracting more questions and more drama. So I think that Anthony Davis has just been a big diva. He's also recently been quoted as saying, we suck. We're not a championship team right now. We have a long way to go. So in general, his attitude just hasn't been very good. He's just been kind of pouting, throwing a tantrum, essentially. And I think that um, if the Lakers are going to turn it around, part of it has to start with Anthony Davis talking less in postgame interviews and doing a little bit more on the court. So um, we'll see how that goes for them. But moving on to a team in the East, we have been talking a lot about this team, the Chicago Bulls, obviously having a lot of success. I think one of the bigger surprises for me, however, though, has been that I really did think that this year would be a year that Zach Levine would establish himself as one of the maybe 15 best players in the league, given that he has um, all this supporting talent around him. And he has been having a fantastic year. Don't get me wrong. But the shocking part is that DeMar DeRozan may be having a better year and is actually leading the, the team in scoring and also seems to be the one taking a lot of the more important shots towards the end of the game. When they talk about um, an MVP candidate for the Bulls, it would be DeMar DeRozan that they're talking about at this point and not Zach Levine. Is DeMar DeRozan guilty of taking Levine's team from him? Simply put, yes. But let's dive into this a little bit further because I think that while Levine is amazing and is an amazing talent, he's been stuck on a Bulls team that hasn't had the offensive prowess or shooting talent around him or even offensive playmakers that he now has. They get Vucevic in the middle of the season last year at the trade deadline. They get Lonzo Ball this offseason. They get DeMar DeRozan this offseason. They get Caruso this offseason. And so they now fill this team around Levine that's one, helping him on the offensive end, two, playing to his skill set, and three, now allowing him to not be the only guy on the floor who is an offensive threat. So I think it completely revitalized DeMar DeRozan's career. And yes, he does have the spotlight over Levine right now. I do think that Levine has the potential to take it back. But you also have to think, technically right now, DeRozan is more valuable of a player to the Bulls than Levine because he is signed to the Bulls for the next three years. And Levine is in a contract year. So Levine could walk away this season and say, hey, we didn't really get to the finish line. We don't really have what it takes as a team. I'm going to go join up with whomever in this city to make a run for it at the championship. And then DeRozan's going to be on the Bulls while Levine is not. So I think that it's a good thing for the Bulls. It's a good problem to have. And for Levine, if anything, I think it motivates him to one, play better, to get back the spotlight, but two, allows him to relax a little bit in terms of not having to be the guy night in and night out. Yeah, it'll be interesting um, to see how Levine and him coexist for the rest of the year. Obviously, major implication for what Levine will do in the offseason. So um, obviously so far it's looked really good, but you do have to wonder, is being the number one offensive option something that is important to him? Um, if something were to happen where, I mean, I don't expect it to happen, but if Levine leaves and DeMar DeRozan then becomes the franchise player for the Bulls, it would be a very interesting situation because they'd essentially have lost Jimmy Butler, a player that they considered not to be good enough to be a franchise player at that time, for a player that is the lesser version of him, I guess, at the same position, I wouldn't consider DeMar DeRozan to be quite as good as Jimmy Butler is because of the impact that Jimmy has on both ends of the floor. And now you have Jimmy Butler playing with Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan's old-time running mate with the Raptors. So it's funny how things come full circle in the league. Yeah, Jimmy posted recently, I think four days ago, saying DeMar's biggest haters after DeMar had a good game. So it was a picture of him and uh, Kyle. So. Yeah, they're, they're playing, you know, on different teams, but obviously those guys still have a, a pretty close-knit relationship. Yep. That's pretty much it for today. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming now that our other judge is officially hitched. Um, feeling refreshed from his honeymoon. But definitely make sure to give us a follow on Twitter, 
Um, follow our podcast. And if you have any opinions that you disagree with or you think are better, feel free to let us know. We'd love to show you why you're wrong. So definitely hit us up. For Court of Opinion, I'm Mike Sturr. I'm Eric Gonzalez. Court is adjourned.